Welcome back to the Locust Grove Podcast. You are listening to our Sunday morning sermon series, Tough Questions. This week, you will be hearing the second part of our two-part sermon on the question, Who Has the Final Word? As we study the story of Lazarus being resurrected from the dead, we consider how this miracle applies to us personally, but also how it applies to us eternally. We hope that you will be encouraged and challenged as we consider both the pain of Lazarus' sisters and the power of Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. The song is a perfect segue back into the passage that we began studying last week. If you were with us last week, we began studying this rather lengthy account of Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 44. We're in this series, really we're coming to the end of this series through uh, the middle portion of John's gospel on tough questions. And the question that we're seeing answered through uh, John's account of this event with Lazarus in John chapter 11 is the question of who has the final word. Now, if you remember last week, we sort of acknowledge that sometimes these miracles or actually signs, as John calls them, if you notice in John's gospel, he never refers to the miracles as miracles. He refers to them as signs. And the reason he does that is John's gospel is divided up between seven signs and seven sermons. If you read through John's gospel, you'll start to see that natural break. There's a sign, and then there's a sermon. Then there's a sign, and then there's the sermon. And the reason John refers to them as signs and not miracles is because the point of the miracles is to teach a truth. It's to illustrate a truth. And so the sermon helps sure up for us sort of what the truth of the sign or the miracle was. But we acknowledge that sometimes as we see these signs or these miracles in the Gospels, we can acknowledge as Christians that yes, these are historical events that actually happened. These are miracles that Jesus actually performed. But sometimes we can kind of struggle a little bit with what do these miracles mean for me just very practically, right? What, what do they mean for me right now today in the difficulties of life, right? And, and the burdens that we go through and on the mountaintops and in the valleys, the good times and the bad times. So as we started to sort of dissect and, 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 and break this, uh, this text apart to, to really understand the deep truths of it, Yes, we're wanting to see the big picture, which we'll get to this morning, but we're also wanting to see how the intricate details of this passage really should mean something to us, but not just mean something to us, should affect the way we deal with trials and struggles and temptations in this life. So if you weren't with us last week, or if you were and you've slept since then, so you don't really remember what we covered last week, we looked at the first 16 verses of John chapter 11. And, and I mentioned this last week, but we're really seeing three things as we answer this question, who has the final word? We're seeing the purpose of God. We're seeing the pain of the sisters. But then finally, we're seeing the power of Christ. And so verses 1 through 16 last week were all about the purpose of God. And in verse 4, we saw that the primary purpose of God is the glory of the Son. And we talked about what glory means in this case. It means the revelation of God through the Son, revealing who Christ is and then Christ revealing who God is, right? We said if you really want to know God, 
get to know Christ. If you want to know who God is, then He is revealed through the Son. So we saw that in verse 4, but then we saw in verse 5 that the purpose of God is also for the good of those He loves. And it's, it's, it's sort of difficult for us in our human nature to understand that from this text because in verses 1 through 16, what's happened is, is Mary and Martha have their brother Lazarus who's dying. They send for Jesus because they know that at this point Jesus is the only one that can do anything about it. Word gets to Jesus and then the text tells us that Jesus waits two days before He goes to Lazarus before he goes to the sisters. And so we talked about how it's difficult for us to really wrap our minds around how that's good. Well, how is that, how is that being good to the people who Jesus loved? We, we know that Jesus loves these people. As a matter of fact, when they send word to Jesus that Lazarus is sick, the messenger doesn't even say Lazarus is sick. He says the one you love is sick. And so we know that Jesus loves these people, but how is it loving that he waited two days and so one of the things that we talked about is our feelings right it would not have felt good to have known that Jesus waited two days but the real truth there is that our feelings are pathological liars that that our that our feelings are not inerrant and that our our feelings will will tell us lies about God and the only way we can understand truths about God is through His Word. And so we talked about the need to, to read God's Word not through the lens of our feelings but to evaluate our feelings through the lens of God's Word. And that read, led us right up to verses 9 through 11 where this, uh, where, where this imagery of light and darkness returns. It's been a consistent theme in John's Gospel. And we know that when John uses this or when Jesus uses it in John's Gospel... He's not just talking about physical light or physical darkness. He's talking about a spiritual state. And in verses 9 and 11, it's really a strong rebuke of the disciples. I think just a generic reading of this text sometimes might cause us to miss how strongly Jesus is actually rebuking these guys. When He says, yes, we are going to go back into Judea. We're going to go back to where we had just left because they were fixing to stone me. And we're going to see Lazarus. Lazarus is not going to die. And these disciples are scared. Right there saying, well, we don't think it's a good idea to go back. If Lazarus is just asleep, if he's not really dead, then, uh, then there's no need for us to go back. And Jesus rebukes them and He tells them, the reason that you're still scared is because your heart is still consumed with darkness. You're still walking in the darkness. If you knew that I am the light, if you knew that you were walking with the light, then you would have nothing to fear. And so we talked about that in sort of our modern day context and, and how we can't afford to retreat from the darkness of the culture, but we must walk into the culture as the light of the world, with the light of the world, having confidence that we have nothing to fear in the culture because we have the light of Christ. And it's our responsibility to carry that light into a dark and perverse, perverse generation. And so that brings us up to verse 17. I want to invite you to read with me. I'm going to read verse 17, beginning in verse 17, and read all the way down through verse 44. So then when Jesus, excuse me, when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh to Jerusalem, about fifteen furlongs off, and many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met Him, but Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, 
If thou hast been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. When she had, <clears throat> and when she had so said, she went her way and called Mary her sister, secretly saying, The Master is come and calleth for thee. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. Now Jesus was not yet coming to the town, but was in that place where Martha met him. The Jews then, which were with her in the house, and comforted her when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goeth into the grave to weep there. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. And Jesus therefore saw her weeping. And the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. Some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? Jesus therefore again groaning himself cometh to the grave, and it was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. And Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that Thou hast sent me. And when He thus had spoken, He cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. Let's pray together. Lord, we acknowledge that this is indeed Your Word that it has all authority of truth, that truth is, no, is nowhere found in this world except in You, the source of all truth, the source of all creation. So Lord, as we consider this incredible account, help us, Lord, to see with eyes of faith. May Your Holy Spirit illuminate the truth of this text to us so that we may clearly see the point that You want us to take from this Word. Lord, that it would transform our lives, that it would call us to repentance, that it would invite us to faith, but also that it would commission us to take this hope that we have in Your Son Jesus, even to our neighbors and to the nations. And so God, we pray that You would be glorified. We pray that Your truth would take center stage and that everything else in our lives all of our other thoughts, all of our other ideas, all of our other burdens and cares and concerns would be left at the altar of Your feet. 
and that we would walk away from here cherishing the truth of Your Word is the only thing that can give us life and sustain our life. And we ask all of this in the name of Your perfect and righteous Son, the resurrection and the life, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So as I mentioned last week, in these first 16 verses, we see the purpose of God, the purpose of God in pain, the purpose of God in suffering, the purpose of God in hardships, right? The big idea to walk away with is that nothing happens to us by accident. Nothing is without purpose, regardless of how difficult it is or how painful it is for us to go through. Everything is happening with purpose under the sovereignty of God. But... Just because something is happening to us with purpose doesn't mean that it's not painful, right? We have all experienced pain and hardship and heartache in this life. And so one of the things that we see here in the latter part of this passage, specifically now I'm focusing on verses 17 through 38, is we see the pain of the sisters on display. So we saw the purpose of God, that all of this is happening for a purpose. There is a reason behind all of this. It's happening for the good of those that Jesus loves. But now we acknowledge and embrace the pain of the sisters. Now, in order to really appreciate what's going on here, it may be helpful to consider some of the potential historical context. We see that Jesus arrived on the fourth day. I mentioned last week, if you do the math... Uh, the travel time, it's likely that, that Lazarus was already dead by the time that the message even got to Jesus. But regardless, I do think that there's some uh, potential historical significance in this being uh, the fourth day in which Jesus arrived. Some of the early Jewish literature, as far back as the third century, teaches that the soul of a dead individual would remain near the body for three days. After three days, they believe that uh, decay set in so much so that the soul would give up hope and would, would, would depart from, from the presence of the body. And so if this literature from the Jewish uh, teachings in the third century is reflective of Jewish ideology and teaching uh, here in this context just a couple of hundred years before, then all of that to say, if resurrection wasn't impossible before the third day, it was definitely impossible after the third day like all hope was mostly gone before the third day after the third day there was no chance the soul had departed there's absolutely no way that that life could be restored to this this body so hope was as far gone as it could possibly be by the time that that that, that jesus shows up but but now as we really dive into the second part of this passage i want us to briefly consider what exactly is displayed through the pain of the sisters? Because the purposes of God cause the pain of the sisters to really be a platform for Him to work. It's a platform for the gospel to be uh, displayed, for Christ to be revealed. So when Jesus arrives on this scene, there's this, there's this, obvious, there's this obvious pain and there's this heartbreak, there's mourning, there's sadness. But also notice what's happened by the fourth day. A crowd is gathered. By this time, word is spread that, that Lazarus is gone. And so uh, neighbors and friends, people from the Jewish community, they have gathered with the family, with these sisters, to mourn with them. And so don't you see that the purpose of God was that the crowd would gather and that the pain of the sisters would actually become a platform for the hope of the gospel to be 
displayed. It's significant here, the timing of God. We'll talk more about that in just a little bit. But the point is, the pain of the sisters has created a stage for the gospel to be displayed. But as we sort of narrow our focus a little bit more here, and we're thinking about verses 18 through 24, and we see, we see Martha... Her pain actually becomes an opportunity for her to display her faith. Now, I'll be very honest with you. I think sometimes when we study this passage, we make too much out of the sisters' response and their actions. The main point of this text is by no means how Mary and Martha respond and whether there's any doubt, whether there's frustration, whether there's anger, whether there's confusion or whether there's faith. In all honesty, there's all of those things. And, and actually, this pain gives us an opportunity to see the faith of Martha displayed in the midst of all of those emotions, right? In the midst of all of these feelings, we see Martha's faith remain steadfast. Now, it, 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 trying to avoid getting too caught up in the response here and missing the main point, I, I do want us to notice this sort of unwavering nature of Martha's faith. She, she doesn't understand everything that's going on. Right? She acknowledges, Lord, if, if you could have been here, he, he could have been healed. But then she says, even now, right? still, yeah, I believe that whatever you say, whatever you do, I believe that shall be so. And so what we have here is a confession of Martha's faith in Christ despite her disappointment in the situation. Now, there's... A lot of directions we could go with this, and I don't want to go, I don't want to stray off too far other than to say sometimes Satan discourages us further in our disappointment because we view our disappointment as a lack of faith. You know, it is okay to be disappointed. God understands Martha's disappointment because you know what God understands? He understands that Martha doesn't see the whole picture. Right? And so, so she is disappointed. She's disappointed that her brother has died. She's disappointed that, that Jesus wasn't there four days sooner, but she still believes that Jesus is who He says He is. She still believes that He has all authority, that He has all power. And so her faith is steadfast, even though in this moment she's disappointed. So last week we talked about our feelings diluting and confusing the truth. Here's a situation where Martha is taking her feelings, she's acknowledging her feelings, but she's also considering these feelings through the truth that she knows about the Son of God. But here's the thing. Martha's faith still only extends as far as her knowledge. Do you see that? Jesus says, Lazarus will rise again. He is going to come back. And she says, I know. I've got this knowledge of the resurrection on the last day. And so, yes, I still believe that. Right? Her faith is extending as far as what she knows. This is common to all of us, right? Your faith extends as far as your knowledge. And so, if you don't spend very much time in God's Word, if you don't spend very much time rightly dividing the word of truth, your faith isn't going to go very far because your knowledge isn't going to go very far. Right? We're, we're not saved by knowledge. We don't like earn a relationship with Jesus. We don't earn this resurrection because we gain so much knowledge. But we mature in this life. We, ma we mature in experiencing the resurrection and life of Christ by growing in knowledge. And so... 
Martha should be commended for having faith as far as her knowledge goes, but now, in order to increase her faith, Jesus is going to help her increase her knowledge. And so just as our emotions can sometimes be a hindrance during difficult times, our knowledge or lack thereof of Jesus can also be a hindrance to us during difficult times. But she remains faithful. But again, her and Mary here as we consider this text are both obviously frustrated, disappointed. But notice, Jesus gives them this assurance, right? It's going to be fine. Lazarus is going to rise from the dead. He gives them this assurance. But then then He shows Martha and her sister Mary and the others compassion and empathy. Now, I don't want us to miss this because this is so important to us about who Christ is. Now, now we're really getting into what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Right? We, we, we talk about it, hopefully we can all acknowledge a personal relationship with Jesus doesn't mean that you're going to live the rest of your life pain-free. You're not. They have a personal relationship with Jesus, they're, they're experiencing pain right now. Some of you, many of you maybe, are experiencing pain right now. You have experienced hardship, you have experienced loss. It doesn't mean that you are pain-free. But look what happens. Look at the hope that is established and then the compassion that is displayed here in verses 25 and following. First, in verse 25, the victory of Christ becomes incredibly obvious. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Very important how Jesus says this. Grammar is important. It's important here. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He doesn't say... I can resurrect people. He doesn't say, I can resurrect your brother. He doesn't say, I have life. No, He says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And so here's the thing. Here's the theological truth to draw from just this, this really first part that we're studying this morning, but it's really the theological truth that is on full display all throughout this passage. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, what He's doing is taking His resurrection beyond an event. Now, we'll reference it in just a few moments. As a matter of fact, we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Christ in just a little bit with baptism. right? We're we're going to celebrate the fact that because Jesus was crucified, buried in a tomb, in the ground, for three days and resurrected on the third day, we can have life. And so with two young men, we get to celebrate that. right? They will be emerged in the water, buried with Christ, symbolically raised with Christ, to communicate this outward display of this inward reality. But here's the thing. Here's why we have hope in Jesus. We have hope in Jesus because the resurrection wasn't just an event. It was a historical event. Without a doubt, it's one, of, it's one of the most attested historical events from this entire period of history. Multiple writings outside of Scripture will reference the resurrection of Jesus. Even if there was doubt, even if there was some sort of confusion, there was enough people, 500 in fact, that saw Jesus after His resurrection that it is a historically attested fact that has carried on uh, through the generations and passed down through the, the annuals of history, and of course, most significantly, significantly through God's inspired Word. 
But when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, what He's telling the disciples is in just a little while, I'm going to be buried in a tomb. And three days later, I'm going to be raised from the dead. But the point isn't that there's an event of resurrection. The point is that I am the resurrection. That I am the one that will give up my life and I am the one that will take it up again. And so the reason, if you're a follower of Christ this morning, the reason you can sit in these pews with hope isn't just because there was an event, the resurrection, but it's because the one who was resurrected is the resurrection and the life. There is a continual state of being here. It's not that I will be resurrected one day and then I was resurrected. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forevermore. He is the resurrection and the life. So our hope is not in an event, but our hope is in a person. Our hope is in the person of Jesus. And so nothing can hinder Him from giving life because He doesn't just have life, He is life. Nothing can hinder Him from resurrection because He, isn't, he, he doesn't just have the ability to resurrect, He is resurrection. But then Jesus makes a promise and it goes beyond what, what He's going to do for Lazarus in verse 26. You see, what He does for Lazarus is He proves that He has the power to keep His promises. He promises that those who believe, though they die physically, will live on forever. Promises that those who live spiritually will never have to worry about their spiritual life ending. That's the reason we can sing about great hope. right? That's the reason we can have this hope for the future. We hope in Jesus Christ. We, we believe like Martha that He is the Son of God come into the world just as He promised to rescue us from death and hell. And we know that He is the only one that we can trust in with our lives so that when we give our lives over to Him, they are sealed up with Him in resurrection and in life. You've heard me say it before. If you are in Christ, what is true of Christ is true of you. Christ is conforming you into His image. And He is preparing you for the resurrection that Martha talked about. right? When, when we leave this earthly body, we don't just go somewhere random. We're not just hanging out in the abyss. No, we join up with the resurrection and the life. We are glorified with Him because He is the resurrection and the life. And so the victory of Christ is evident in this, pa- in this passage But remember I said this compassion is also important. Your relationship with Jesus is significant. Having a relationship with Jesus is significant because it's the only way to experience resurrection in life. But now it gets very personal. Look at verses 33 and 35 and we see the compassion of Christ on display. These these verses really show Jesus' response to Mary's and Martha's sorrow. Jesus knows what He's going to do. He has no doubt about the sign that He is about to perform. But notice what He does before He he does it. So last week, maybe we're a little bit concerned in the flesh of how much Jesus really cares because he, he, He waits four days before He comes. But now notice what He does. Now notice how His love's displayed. He doesn't just roll in and say, Guys, dry it up. 
I mean, if you really believe what you say, then just dry it up and let, give me a second and let me, let me do what I need to do. Now, do you see what he does? He stops. He, he pauses, even though he knows what he's going to do, and he responds to those he loves who are hurting with this deep compassion. Paul commands followers of Christ in Romans 12, 15 to weep with those who weep. You know why Paul commands us to do that? Because he's commanding us to do what Jesus did. Even though he is the resurrection and the life, he still stops to weep with those who are weeping. Don't miss the beauty of this passage. We have to be willing to love others enough to enter into their suffering. Isn't that really the mark of being like Christ? He doesn't just roll into town and he's standoffish from their suffering. It's like, oh, I can't, I can't deal with all these emotions, which would definitely be my temptation, right? I don't, I don't care. This is, why are they crying? If they really believe me, then why would they be upset? No, he, he enters into their suffering with them. So oh, for us to be more like Jesus... For us to be willing to suffer with others when they suffer. Yes, of course, brothers and sisters in Christ. But this goes right back to engaging our culture who is hurting and is suffering and is looking for answers in all the wrong places. How far would compassion with the message of the gospel potentially go? And so the most remarkable part is that Jesus is going to do something that takes away their suffering. He's fixing to perform a miracle that will, that will remove their suffering. But before He fixes their problem, He joins their pain. Do you realize how much hope is tied up in this truth for you and I? As I said a moment ago, there's probably several in this room who are doing some, some sort of hardship, some sort of pain, some sort of struggle. Can I just say to you this morning, Jesus joins you in your pain. You don't suffer alone. You don't hurt alone. Listen, there is a day coming when He will remove every tear from every eye. There is a day coming when there will be no more suffering, where there will be no more pain, there will be no more death. And whatever affliction you are facing, it may last until you join Him face to face. But whether it lasts till you join Him face to face or whether it just lasts till this afternoon and Jesus intercedes and removes the pain, regardless, we must believe, we must understand what this passage is revealing to us is that Jesus joins us in our pain. And so we do not suffer alone. I love, the tr I love this truth. He is going to exile the grief of the sisters. But before He exiles it, He enters into it. Because our Jesus loves us so much, not just that He's going to be the resurrection and the life for us, that He is the resurrection and life for us, but that He's willing to enter into our grief with us. He's willing to endure what we must endure with us so that we are never left alone. But again, we can't be afraid to enter other people's pain. We've got to be more like Jesus in this way. There's so many times that we shy away from the uncomfortable things. So many times that we just want to quickly smooth over the brokenness. Listen, we need to, out of love, sit and weep with those who weep. We should pray for a heart that breaks with heaviness when others suffer. 
There's a number of reasons why I believe Jesus wept. And, and we don't have time in one sermon to go through all of the reasons Jesus was weeping. But the point is, He wept with the sisters. The point is, He entered into their pain before He relieved their pain. But then finally, we come to this last section of the passage and we see this question of who has the last word sort of fully and finally answered in the power of Jesus. Now we see His power revealed here in two ways. We see, the, we see it revealed in the timing of Christ. Excuse me. We see it revealed in the timing of Christ and we see it revealed in the miracle or in the sign of Christ. So let's talk about this timing issue first. His power being revealed in His timing. Why did He let those that He loved experience four days of grief? Right, Jesus is doing things that it's really hard for us to grasp. Sometimes He does things that we can never grasp. But He's God. And His purposes are far beyond our purposes. His ways are far beyond our ways. They're far beyond what we can even imagine. And so we don't know all that Jesus is doing. I don't know all that Jesus is doing in your life. I don't even know what all He's doing in my life. Right? We can't know what all He's doing in the life of our church. I'm excited about all of it. Right? I'm really optimistic about what Jesus is doing in my life and your life and the life of the church. But, but we can't ever know all that He's doing. But what we should never do is doubt His love. D doubt His desire for us to experience His glory. Doubt his, his call for us to trust Him. His love, His glory, and our need for faith are often most clear in the darkest times of life. It was clear for the sisters and our pain. It's clear that we have this desperate need for something more. And if you're without Christ when hard times hit, man, you're searching all kinds of different ways. You're looking all kinds of different areas and trying to satisfy, trying to escape that pain in all sorts of different ways. But understand, this miracle was about something bigger than just removing grief. The grief was removed, but this miracle was about the power of Jesus over death. You see, the crowd that had gathered were intimate witnesses to death's demise. It's almost like this scene is painted at high noon and they're lining the streets watching Jesus fixing to square off with Lazarus' death. They're going to watch this showdown between Jesus and death and right there on that stage, the miracle of Christ reveals the power of Christ over death. It's sort of funny as we read this story, when you get down to verses 43 and 44, there's all of this build up, right? Lazarus is dying, Jesus is waiting, Lazarus has died, Jesus is weeping. There's, there's all of this buildup. There's 42 verses of buildup. And then there's two verses. Lazarus come forth, out he comes, wrapped up in gray's clothes. Jesus says, let him go. That's it, right? It's almost like this anticlimactic ending to all of this buildup. But this just reinforces for us the point of the story. The point of the story isn't that, G that Lazarus has been temporarily restored to life. The point of the story was found back in verse 25. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That's 
the point of the miracle. That, that, is, that is what we are to be left with. That's what the whole crowd was to be left with. Death has no power. Death has no say in the presence of Jesus. And so the point isn't that Lazarus comes back to life. Lazarus is going to die again. Right? He's going to go back into a grave. But now the whole world knows that when he enters that grave, that Jesus is the one that has the power over that grave. That Jesus is the one who has life. So because if we are going to believe that Jesus really is life, if we're going to accept what Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, then we have to acknowledge that this fight wasn't even fair. And to be honest with you, I think that's the reason John includes such few words about Lazarus' resurrection. It wasn't any big deal to Jesus. Right to us, this is a huge deal. This dude just walked out of the tomb for four days. He's supposed to be smelly by now, but here he comes walking. It's a big deal to us. But to Jesus, it's nothing. It's just like I said last week, it's easier for Jesus to get Lazarus up out of the tomb than it is for us to get our kids out of bed in the morning. John doesn't make a big deal about it because it's no big deal to Jesus. This is inherently who he is, the resurrection and the life. It was a mismatch from the moment that Jesus was born. And so when Lazarus walks out of the tomb, yeah, he's still wrapped in these funeral garments. But here's the thing. Ten chapters later, we're going to eventually get to this point in John's Gospel. In ten chapters, we're going to read about another resurrection. One that is much bigger than this one. Listen, there are very few passages that are filled with more hope than John chapter 11. There are occasions in our life when, when, when we feel hopeless, when we feel helpless. But most of you know this feeling. All of you probably know this feeling. There are few instances in life where we feel more hopeless or helpless than in the presence of death. It feels so final to us, but not to Jesus. There is no reason to be hopeless in the presence of death if you are in Christ. For us, when we think about death, oftentimes we think that it's all over. There's no more chances. There's no more hope. Death has spoken and it is final. But John chapter 11, Jesus comes onto the scene and He says, that's not the case anymore. I am the resurrection and I am the life. I have the final word and the final word is this. No more death. No more sorrow. No more sickness. I am giving you a glimpse of what I am fixing to accomplish fully and eternally on my cross, through my grave, and through my resurrection. And it's exactly that that we celebrate today. Now listen, I don't believe that there are any direct correlations between Lazarus' resurrection and baptism. Those are theological hurdles we shouldn't try to cross. But baptism does represent in many ways the same thing that the resurrection of Lazarus represents. That our hope isn't in this world. My hope isn't in my heart continuing to beat or my lungs continuing to inhale and exhale oxygen. My hope is in the resurrection and the life. And because of that, 
we celebrate new life through baptism. Right? To be symbolically buried with Christ and to be raised with Christ to walk in a new life. In a new life, excuse me, because when we, when we have accepted this truth, the main truth of John chapter 11, that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and life, life is found nowhere else except in Jesus. Without Jesus, death is final for you. With Jesus, death has no power over you. Not because of anything that you are, or not because of anything that you've done or accomplished, but because of everything that Jesus is and everything that Jesus has accomplished. He has from the very beginning been inherently the resurrection and the life. And so now we rejoice together and we celebrate what it means to live in the light of the one who is the resurrection and the life. Thank you for listening to the Locust Grove podcast. We want to remind you to like and subscribe to the podcast so that you will be notified anytime we post a new episode. We pray that you have been encouraged and challenged by what you have heard in today's episode, and we look forward to joining with you again next week.